Hello everyone and welcome from here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is Capital Geek, a podcast dedicated to the founders and operators that create the products we love and turn them into fabulous companies with meaningful exits. Whether you're raising your first round of capital or racing toward an IPO, this is where we deep dive on the lessons learned from seasoned industry veterans, geeks of all types, the experts leading product and engineering teams, operations and finance, or sales and marketing, and we'll both learn from their mistakes and celebrate their successes while providing a roadmap for you to accelerate your own journey towards success. My name is Josh Stevens, CTO at Elsewhere Partners, and I am the Capital Geek. On this episode of Capital Geek, we geek out with Nate Ani, CEO and founder of AppSimpler. Nate and his team have created something very unique in the area of technical education enablement, and I can't wait to learn more about it. Let's get started. Nate, hello and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm super glad to have you here. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and, and to learn more about your company. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. You know, I've, I've gotten to know your tech and, and the company you've built, but I really don't know much about your background. Yeah, so um, I got started, you know, pretty early uh, getting into computers, you know, programming basic Back uh, back in the day, um, my family got like one of the the very first IBM PCs, and uh, it was just a monochrome monitor, no hard drive. And so I just started. I didn't have any games back then because all my friends had Apple IIs and I had an IBM. So um, so I tried to build my own games uh, just by you know like copying code out of you know computer magazines <laughs> and trying to wow. just just hack things together. Um, and so I had this fascination, you know, pretty early on uh, with how these things work. You know, I would find old circuit boards and, and like take them apart and try to put them back together again. So I've always had this kind of fascination with technology and understanding how things work. Um, and I guess you could say I'm a, I'm a diehard problem solver. I just love sinking my teeth into problems and trying to figure out how to make things work. That that's really interesting. Um, about the same time frame as you would have gotten started on the IBM PC, um, my mom, who's a speech pathologist, uh, in the summertime she could bring home her computer from her office, which was an Apple IIc. Hmm. And so my first experiences with computers were, of course, on an Apple platform with games, but all of the games were educationally oriented, paid for mm-hmm. by the school system. And so they were, you know, mathematical games and, and, you know, things that taught you how to estimate large numbers, you know, constellations in the sky and things like that. Um, but I think it, 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 it drove me in a direction of sort of thinking about how technology could change our lives. And I think that may have been what set me on the path of, you know, driving toward that as a career. It was those hmm. early experiences, you know, on those, those Apple platforms in the same time frame as you. Um, were you always entrepreneurial or was that something that you kind of got into later in life? Yeah, I think in my teenage years, I started thinking about starting a company and I think one of my very first paid gigs as a, you know, in the computer realm was, um, doing some consulting for a lawyer who had just gotten a computer for his office and needed some help setting it up. And I remember going over his office and, you know, what 
would have taken him probably hours or days to figure out. It took me, you know, maybe half hour or something to get everything set up. And, uh, and afterwards he, he wrote me a check. And I remember just like walking out of the office thinking that was pretty cool. You know, something that I've, <laughs> I've just figured out on my own. And like this guy really values my time and my expertise. Um, a lot better than mowing a yard out in the heat, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. I, I think my first jobs were uh, mowing lawns, babysitting and, um, being a caddy on a golf course in 90 degree heat, um, carrying two bags. So this was, this was definitely a step up <laughs> career wise. And I think that kind of set the, tra the trajectory, um, for me to start thinking, you know, about technology as a career. Um, and then in college, I, I was a president of the computer club and now, where was this? Where was the school? This this was out in uh, Washington State. Oh, okay. And uh, one summer, I had an internship at um, Adobe, which was Aldis at the time. And they had uh, they were getting rid of all these Vax terminals. You know, those like old tele. You know, basically, it's like a terminal you just plug into your network. It's a dumb terminal. It mm -hmm. doesn't actually have its own operating system. And they were getting rid of those, um, like hundreds of them. And my campus at the time was just getting on, it wasn't even the internet, it was like the bit, it was, it was called BitNet back then. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew that a lot of people on campus were going to want to get plugged into this, you know, for doing, you know, you know, rudimentary email and whatnot. So I worked out a deal with Adobe to buy these things, like in a fire sale. I mean, we got them pennies on the dollar. And then I used those terminals to essentially fund the computer club's budget and with that we were able to do a lot of outreach and we were able to to get uh, Adam Engst who is the, the author of Tidbits to come down and and do a talk on the internet starter kit and so this is like back when the internet was just in its infancy most people on campus didn't even know what it was um, but we we plugged in all these terminals and then a lot of students on campus you know were able to get on the internet for the first time um, so that was another kind of entrepreneurial um, revelation for me that I could use technology to make a big impact um, and actually, you know, generate enough income that we could do other things. It's pretty wild when you realize that the things that you like to do um, could provide a living for you, that someone might actually pay you to do the things that you probably would do anyway, even if, if no one paid you for it. You know, in that same time frame, I was in the Air Force and I had two giant uh, AT&T servers. And when I say giant, I mean they were each larger than my refrigerator is today. And one of them fed uh, hundreds of dumb terminals, as you described, you know, green screens, no local OS. But the other one, all it did was it was our DNS server for the Air Force <laughs> base. You know, a, a process that my iPhone could probably power today. Um, but then, you know, it was this, this huge, uh, refrigerator size computing device that was so, so critical for, for everything we were working on. And I'll never forget when I replaced that, uh, AT&T, uh, 3B2 was the model number with a small, uh, you know, x86, uh, PC that I had l installed Linux on. This is like, you know, early 90s. Yeah. And, and that became a DNS server, and eventually, you know, another one became our web server. And, 
back when you had to write all your web code by hand and you didn't, mm -hmm. there was no WYSIWYG or low code, you know, web interfaces, yeah. you know, Square wasn't there yet and things like that. Um, it, it's, it's quite amazing to think about how these advances in technology, especially in networking, I think, have really fueled um, careers for so many of us. You know, it, th things that would have been hard to imagine when we were, you know, college age or for me, uh, active duty, but have, have transformed the world. And I think that part of what I love about your company now is at AppSimbler, you're helping to educate people and provide a, you know, a framework and a, and a platform to continue to, to push the envelope and, and help technology companies you know, share the word and educate people on their tech. And so it's education's always been near and dear to my heart. I'm a, I'm a teacher, um, at my core. Uh, although I've, I've found ways to make money from it you know, by not teaching directly, I guess you might say. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating part about, about what you guys do. So take us from, you know, you're, you're in college, you're, you're buying these dumb terminals and using them to generate uh, income for the school to, ha to, you know, for the program all the way to AppSimbler. You know, were there several stops and starts along the way or kind of how did that happen? Yeah, there were definitely a lot of twists and turns uh, over the years. I've also had uh, an interest in music. So um, what, what brought me back to the U.S., this, this is after, after college, I, I lived abroad for a few years. Uh, now, where'd you live? I lived in Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, I've been to Denmark. It's a beautiful country. Yeah, I had a really good time over there. And Your talk so, about Washington State and about Denmark is is just making me a little jealous since I'm in Austin, Texas today, and it's already <laughs> over 100 degrees, and it's only 10 a.m. Yeah, it's definitely a lot cooler in, in Washington and Denmark. Um, so, yeah, I had... Graduated with a degree in computer science and my last semester of college, I did it abroad in, in Denmark and all of my peers were you know, going back to the US to finish their school. And since it was my last semester, I was able to just, I decided oh, I'm just gonna hang out here, stay in Denmark for a while. And so my first job uh, out of college was working at the school where I was studying and I was in charge of the building the new website. Actually it was the first website that this organization ever had. And so I spent a lot of time in the server room. This is back when you know you you ran your own server and mm -hmm. hosted everything on your own machines. Obviously, we don't do that anymore today, or at least most people don't. Um, so that was that was a really great time for me to just have the space to explore. And I was in this environment uh, where I could basically have the the run of the mill. I was like the IT person, so I I could basically make a lot of decisions about what technology we use. And I had a really great boss at the time. So that my first job was at a, you know, an academic setting. Um, and my mom was an educator for many years. Uh, so I kind of grew up in that environment and, you know, she was always studying and reading and, um, and I think it was just, you know, just like music was part of my upbringing. I think education was really, as you said, you know, near and dear to my heart. Um, so it, it made a lot of sense to then take my knowledge and skills that I had learned over the years in technology and apply those in, you know, into a educational setting. Um, 
so then there was a lot of other uh, experiences, you know, living abroad and then going to music school in Boston. Um, and I eventually uh, ended up starting my own web consulting company called Jazz Carta. And uh, we used a lot of open source technology to build essentially websites, but also web applications. And, um, and that was, that really kind of introduced me to the whole world, the whole world of open source and the community of open source developers that I hadn't really been exposed to before. Over the years, I've been involved in several different open source communities. Um, the first one was Plone, which is a open source Python based content management system. And then later I got involved with um, Django, um, also was in the Docker community for a little while, and then most recently the OpenEdX community. So um, in, every, in every one of these communities, I've really tried to understand um, obviously the software itself, but also what makes developers tick and you know, how, how do they learn new technologies? Like what are, what are the obstacles and the blockers for someone to adopt new technology? And, you know, what are ways that you can um, teach people how to adopt new technology? I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of the, the big challenges that we face right now with how every company is becoming a technology company and yet there aren't enough technical people to fill all the jobs that are, that are open. And so it's a, it's a really, really big problem. And that's one of the things that, you know, every, every day I wake up, look in the mirror and I can say, Hey, I'm, I'm working on a big problem here. <laughs> that's, you know, hopefully we can make an impact to people out in the, in the world who are um, either trying to make a career shift or, you know, maybe they're in a non-tech job, but they want to get into the tech industry. And so I like to think that, you know, the tools that we're building, the technology that we are um, deploying is helping companies and individuals, um, you know, really level up and grow their skills and um, grow their career. You know, Nate, I've, I've spoken to you about AppSimbler and the technology and the business fundamentals, but I don't think I ever heard from you before sort of why your passion around education and fostering you know career development and educational development as part of the tech industry which which is fascinating to me because i also am I'm very passionate about that and i've spent a lot of my career working toward those items right now i'm doing some volunteer work for a great organization uh, called student r d or code labs Mm -hmm. And so they need mentors and advisors for students from juniors in high school up through uh, seniors in college, uh, you know, mentoring, uh, resume review and advice, mock interviews. It's been an incredibly rewarding experience to, to help this organization. So a shout out to student R&D and, and uh, Code Labs. But, you know, there's, there's still a lacking sort of a marriage of technology like AppSimbler and organizations like Student R&D and a, a mentor or advisor community. And that's something that I commonly get asked about over LinkedIn or even over my other social media channels like Twitter. 
is people asking for advice and connecting them with a mentor or advisor. It can be a really tough transition, I think, to move from a non-tech career into a tech career. But what's great about it right now is that there are companies like AppSimbler out there that have great enabling technologies. And there's so much demand for tech skills that if you can get even just a base uh, education, you know, nine months of training in Java or some base computer fundamental, you can probably start out in a tech support role of some sort and work your way up. And I can't think of another career quite like that that, that has this sort of growth. And so it, it makes me it makes me proud to be a part of it, but I think more importantly, it makes me very hopeful that we're seeing an acceleration of the availability of this sort of education beyond just those of us that could afford uh, to go to college or, mm-hmm. in my case, to join the military and go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell us a little bit more about AppSimbler. You know, I think that e- even understanding the website, under, I, I think maybe more importantly than that is understanding now your perspective and kind of what led you down this path. And so with that context, I'd love to hear again from you sort of how you view the company and and where you'd like to take the products. Yeah. Yeah. So in a nutshell, what AppSumbler does is we help companies deliver hands-on technical training at scale. So an example of this is Chef Software. So they're a a company that um, recently joined and they've, to date, they've trained over 150,000 developers. Um, on their learn.chef.io site. And when they came to us, they had a homegrown solution that they had built from scratch. Um, and it was, it was really slick and you know, it, it did a lot of things, um, but ultimately it was, it was a huge beast to maintain that custom code, you know, homegrown code. Um, so they were really looking for a platform, you know, ideally that was open source, that was scalable, that was supported and maintained. And uh, the other really key thing for them was hands-on labs, like being able to learn by doing, right? Um, So what they were able to do with our platform is essentially offer high-quality education to anyone, anywhere who wants to learn more about DevOps infrastructure. Um, You know, obviously the Chef products, they have training on that. And um, what Chef is able to do is they're able to build a community of practitioners Right, so this is not a sales thing. It's not marketing. It's it's education, right? It's free. It's free, freely available. Anyone can sign up. And so Chef is able to access you know, this huge community of developers, um, and some of those people are just there to learn, and some of those people are there, you know, because their company is looking for products like what Chef sells. So, you know, they've been able to get you know a pretty significant number of leads and sales opportunities as a result of offering these free courses. Um, Redis Labs, another open source company that makes you know, the most popular database software, they've had uh, 1.4 billion downloads uh, of their Docker image. Um, and before they started the Redis University, they had no idea who those people were. Right? They're uh, just anonymous people downloading their software. And now they have thousands of enrollments every month of people who are adopting the Redis database uh, software and learning about it. And Redis University has become sort of a definitive place you can go to learn more about Redis. And um, 
similar to Chef, Redis has been able to then build a community around the software and um, also benefit from you know, building a relationship with people who might one day become customers. It's really fascinating. I, I was out in the Northeast earlier this year before the coronavirus uh, outbreak and, and lockdown, and I met with Point3 Security, and so I'll give a shout out to you guys and, and Evan over there, CEO and founder. And Point3 makes uh, cybersecurity uh, training curriculum. And as we were talking about the technology and the company and their offerings, you know, it was obvious that in addition to developing great content, they were also having to build and maintain this platform to enable the content mm -hmm. uh, in order to facilitate uh, the classes, not just the content, but the lab exercises. Those things can be incredibly complex. And, you know, I think in the entire industry right now, we continue to see this, this acceleration of the concept of focusing on your your primary business you know whatever your first principle of business is I'm, I'm a big fan of first principle thinking and find partners to to build the infrastructure because those specialists mm -hmm. will be better in the end at doing that than you would have anyway and so to me when i saw AppSembler, the marriage of the ability to deliver technical education and build quality content with the ability to spin up these virtual lab environments for lab exercises and skills qualification and things like that was just something that I really hadn't seen before. And I think that so many companies try to do that themselves and are stuck trying to reinvent the wheel in, in a way that they really don't have a chance of ever creating something as good as a company like AppSimpler who who that's all you do. You know, you're not, that's right. the content's not your job, it's the platform. Yeah, many software companies, I think, suffer from um, NIH, the not invented here syndrome. You know, they yeah, think, I see oh, that a lot. How hard can it be, right? We're software engineers, we can build stuff. Um, but the reality is that you need dedicated full-time employees, full-time engineers to build and maintain an in-house product, right? As, as Chef discovered, you know, three years in, they realized like, why are we, why are we doing this to ourselves? Um, you know, what if that person or team leaves the team that has built that that, that platform and you're left with an unsupported homegrown product? Um, I once heard a wise person say in defense of open source software that software is not an asset, it's a liability. And, and I think that's, that's really true, especially when you think about the buy versus build question, right? If it's not core to your business, why yes. build it? Why not yeah, buy if it's it? not core IP that adds value. Yeah. Right. If it's exactly. not something that shareholder creates value for shareholders, then why build it? You're absolutely yeah. right. And do you really want your your engineering team spending any cycles on maintaining a training platform if that's not your core business? Yeah, it's 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 really fascinating. I I haven't seen another product quite like this one. The, the closest thing I can think of is you know years ago we would use virtual labs to do software testing and even load testing within virtual networks. You know, HCA Chariot had a great traffic generator for years for doing load load testing on high performance mm -hmm. networks. At SolarWinds, we also wrote our own traffic generator. We called it WAN Killer because <laughs> you could literally kill somebody's WAN if you turned it up enough and generated enough traffic. Yeah. And um, you know, it was it was a great little little fun utility. But we've reached a point now where much of the software that we're creating 
it is pretty complex. I mean, we no matter how well you design the user interface and how intuitive you try to make the product, some of the things we're doing are very complex. You know, building applications in uh, a CI/CD platform and pushing code out every day in your DevOps team, whether you use Chef or Puppet or Ansible or SaltStack or whatever you use, it's incredibly complex. And to try to manage that at the same time that you're managing the platform and building the content it is just a lot. So I'm, I'm really excited about the innovation that you've created and, you know, where the company can go from here. Now, yeah. r remind me, you guys uh, were bootstrapped or, or were you VC funded to start or how did you get started? Yeah, so we have been bootstrapped. Um, we haven't taken any outside capital to date. Um, the The company originated at a startup weekend. Really? Yeah, so a startup weekend is essentially you have 48 hours to come up with an idea, uh, build a prototype, uh, attract a team, build a prototype, and then pre present that uh, in a demo, um, usually to like a panel of investors and advisors. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Um, it's similar to the 48-hour film project, uh, which my wife does uh, has done many times, where you basically have to uh, write, direct, film, and ship uh, a film in 48 hours. But Neither of those things sounds very fun to me. <laughs> you know, 48 hours to come up with an idea, recruit a team, and build a prototype. Uh, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. Um, it, it helps you to really focus on the key... I think one, one person gave, gave the advice that you really not think of the, the end and then kind of work your way backwards. So imagine what is it you're going to be presenting on Sunday evening and then kind of think about well, what do we need to do to get to there. Um, and yeah, you don't have a lot of time. So you have to be, you know, super agile, uh, super, you know, getting to the point. And um, I would assume super caffeinated, too, for the whole weekend, right? A lot of caffeine, for sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that was um, this idea that I had, you know, from running this web consulting company for many years, um, you know, using open source software and realizing that open source software can be really challenging to deploy and install. I mean, you just named a bunch of different, you know, configuration management uh, deployment tools. Back then, we didn't really have any anything like that. Those tools really didn't exist. I think Chef and Puppet might have been around back then. But I, I was you know, looking at these apps on my mobile phone and thinking, it's so easy to get a mobile app on my phone. Why is it so hard to get an open source app running in the cloud? So that was like the, the pain point. You know, that was my itch to scratch was, I know of all these different open source projects that are up on GitHub, but very few people can actually take advantage of the software and actually know have the technical skills to know how to get it running and how to even try it out. And so that was the kind of original idea. It was like, let's make it really easy to deploy open source apps to the cloud, right? Um, I think our, our tagline was go live in five. And our, uh, our mascot was a rabbit. And the company back then was called NodeRabbit. Um, <laughs> and that's it's actually still our official corporation. You know, we're incorporated as NodeRabbit Inc. Um, so that was the you know start weekend. I think we came in second place at that um, sort, of, sort of like a little pitch competition at the end. And then um, the team that I did that with, they they ended up joining me 
to form this company. And we got into a startup accelerator called Mass Challenge in Boston. And so um, that was sort of the, the beginnings of the company. And then it's evolved over the years. We've taken on uh, you know, different names and pivoted a couple times. Um, so it's, it's been a very wandering journey. I mean, I, I think we probably have built three companies in the span of this one corporation that we started back in 2011, 2012. That, that's a great story. Um, and you guys worked with Itential as well, which is a company I've worked with and, and elsewhere investment, an investment I'm also invested in. Um, you know, there are, are certain products that whose purpose is so complex that no matter how much you simplify it, they do need training. Mm. Um, and, and not just training to be able to make them function, but to be able to function correctly. I, I was working on messaging for uh, Ops Compass, which is a company I worked with that does cloud security uh, compliance monitoring. And as, as I was thinking about what those products really do and why people need them, it's, it's not that, that using cloud computing is hard, right? Or that spinning up resources are difficult. It's that doing it correctly in a way that you, you don't leave the door open for hackers or you don't leave the window open for cost to escape because you've made a configuration error or made some setting that puts you at risk for audit or, you know, for compliance issues. That's the hard part, right? It's, it's learning the right way to do those things. And it's so much faster to learn it correctly and then advance from that foundational knowledge mm. than it is, I think, to just learn it ad hoc and then try to back into the right way of doing it. You know, one of my best friends in high school, we, we were friends from kindergarten through college and even to today. Um, he was, he's, a, he's an incredible, uh, incredible person. You know, was, was writing comic books and illustrating them by age five, was publishing a newspaper by age, well, by fifth grade. Um, and, but he could type a hundred words a minute with two fingers and for him to learn to type with all 10 fingers was brutal because mm. for years he had typed with only his index fingers. And I remember him struggling to try to learn, you know, normal typing skills because he eventually migrated from journalism into application development. And now he's a software engineer. But I think that the platform that you guys have built is so special because it, it allows this marriage of content with practical experience in the lab environments that you just can't get other places. And, and so I'm just super happy to have you on the show and talking about this because, uh, like you, I, I think technical education is just ultra important to our success as a country, to to success of our young people as they advance in their careers. Um, it, I, I'm just very impressed by what you guys are doing. Thanks. Yeah, you know, just kind of riff off what you said earlier about doing things the right way. Um, I've always been a very intuitive learner, and uh, my, my parents joke that I would fall asleep. Um, like my, my brother would have stuffed animals um, in his bed and I would have computer manuals that I would just read like for fun. <laughs> um, but when I, when I get my hands on a piece of software or a new language or whatever, I just have start banging on it. And then when I get stuck, I'll go look in the manual. 
And I think, and I didn't realize this until later, I had a very, very good friend who had a very different learning style and he wanted to read, read the manual and get all the foundations before actually trying to write code. And I think there's kind of two different approaches. Like one is, you know, ready, aim, fire. <laughs> the other yeah. is, you know, fire and then, and then aim. Um, and I don't know if one is better than the other. I think there, there's definitely something to be said for um, learning, making mistakes, and then those mistakes really become ingrained. Like you, you're not going to do it that way again once you've made a mistake and you realize the consequences of it. It's, it's hard to learn that way. It's, it's like there can be really dire uh, consequences if you do well, things the wrong way. Well, I think maybe that's, maybe that's the sweet spot, right? I mean, when, when my niece came to live with me a few years ago and I taught her to drive, and we would go out and drive ATVs in the field because it was a very low-risk way of learning trial and error. If, if you made a bad turn, you might hit a mud hole or a tree uh, at a mm -hmm. very low speed. But I would never have taken her to the freeway to learn to drive in, in a vehicle. And I think the challenge today is that contrary to a programming language or a fundamental technology that's foundational, if you're trying to learn something like Chef or Puffet, uh, or excuse me, Puppet or Ansible, you know, w when you make a mistake to a production cloud environment, th there are real ramifications. Yes. Yeah. And so, I think that's why that in those cases, platforms like AppSimbler are just ultra critical, and enable a a much more rapid consumption of the technology than what would have been available otherwise. And I also think that, you know, rich feature, rich products, like the ones we've talked about, th they have features and capabilities that you just wouldn't find through trial and error. Mm. You know, I mean, we can play with them, uh, you know, for weeks on end and learn as much as we can, but there are going to be things that they built in that we probably wouldn't have found unless, we learned about it in some sort of formal training or, or in a manual or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the fundamental problem with a lot of systems out there today that you know, purport to do online training or, you know, e-learning as it's been called, is they're really not designed for software training. And, you know, so, so if you think about the, the evolution of e-learning, um, there was multiple choice question, you know, which is great for like, you know, compliance training or whatever. And then it's kind of evolved into video-based training, um, which is, you know, you could create screencasts of the software, but that becomes really hard to maintain uh, as the software is changing. Um, and then kind of the next stage of evolution was simulation-based training, right, where you, you take uh, screenshots of, of the different screens in your application and then you create hotspots. And then when people... Let's say you're, you're teaching someone electronic medical record um, software and they're, they're looking at patient data. You don't want them looking at real patient data. You want them looking at sort of dummy data, right? So you create a simulation of what that's going to look like. But the problem with both video-based training and simulation-based training is it has a really high cost of maintenance, right? Especially as you have software evolving so rapidly today. It used to be, you know, software would get released once a year and now it's like once a quarter, once a month, once a week, even even daily, right? Software is getting pushed. Um, and so if you're a training team and you need to maintain your training material, your curriculum, you have a really big problem if you're using an antiquated system for managing all your training content. 
because those videos are going to go out of date. Those uh, simulations are going to go out of date. So where we come in is kind of this later stage of the evolution, which is hands-on virtual labs, right? So instead of making a video about your software or a simulation, you actually give people the real software, but you give it to them in a sandbox environment that's safe, right? It's not production. They can experiment, they can play, they can make mistakes, and they can learn by doing. And this form of active learning is found to be vastly, vastly superior to passive learning, where you're just watching a video or you're reading about something, watching someone else do something. You're not going to learn it unless you actually do it yourself. It's like trying to learn how to ride a bike by watching a video on how to learn to ride a bike. It's just well, it's not it's not going to work. It's also just much more engaging and, and fun, right? I mean, if, if you if you love using software or, or building applications, you, you know, you, you want to have your hands in it. That's what you enjoy. It, it's the thrill of seeing technology come to life at your fingertips. And it's very hard to get that fulfillment from a book or, or an online manual. I think that mm -hmm. you need the, the virtualized environment to experiment and, and these you know, virtual playgrounds in, in order to learn from. I, I think it's fascinating. And you know, I think it's, it's, it's revolutionizing the way that many companies can, can learn or teach their people. But I think more importantly, and this is something we haven't really talked about yet. I, I know we're running short on time, but when you're trying to market to people like you and I, when you're trying to market to a software developer or a cybersecurity specialist, it's very difficult to get them to open an email uh, or a Facebook or LinkedIn message or use traditional marketing channels. But when you can offer them education, as a way of giving them familiarity and comfort with the technology, it, it is a more effective way of marketing, and it's, it's a more honest way of marketing. It, it's, it says, hey, I believe in my product so much that I want you to learn to drive it and try it out. And if you don't like it, then don't use it. At SolarWinds, I would always tell customers that, that I wanted them to test drive three products before they chose one to let, mm -hmm. let me let solar winds be one, mm -hmm. pick any other two, install them and run them for a week. And then let's talk. And if they honestly felt like the other products were a better value, then they should go buy them. And I never lost a bake off. Mm -hmm. And I think that that experience is something that we should all strive for. I think that that's an experience that in, in a free market, we should be leaning hard on because as technologists, we are eager to learn, but we are reluctant to be sold to. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I love this because it, it really gets to the heart of the value that we provide to our customers. I recently heard a webinar with the CMO of Twilio, um, and she said that the secret to marketing developers is don't market to developers. I believe <laughs> and, it. And, and what she meant by that is, is that marketers are essentially immune to traditional forms of marketing, right? They don't respond well to eBooks and webinars and you know, lots of email, you know, outbound email. Um, when they fill out a form, 85% of technical buyers will, will use a fake email address. They won't put their, their real one. So if you're a company and you're trying to attract developers, those methods just don't work anymore. But those technical buyers are super influential. They're key stakeholders in any, any buying decision. 
Um, and really, you know, what we've heard from our customers is that it's all about building trust and authenticity with developers, with the technical audience, and, and not bombarding them with all kinds of sales and marketing content, but like helping them to get started with the product as quickly and easily as possible. And the proof is in the pudding, right? If, I, I love your example of like, try SolarWinds and try two other products and, and come back to us you know, after you've, you've run their course. Because a lot of companies still to this day buy software sort of a very top-down approach where you know, some executive in a boardroom somewhere that's, that's making, is signing the contract and making the decision, but they've never actually run the software through the paces and tried it out. And, and that's very dangerous. There's a lot of waste in the industry where people buy software without actually trying it out and seeing if it's going to work for you. And a lot of that software becomes shelfware. It's, it's never used again. Um, yeah. And in many cases, those companies keep paying for software maintenance and subscription renewals every year, even though the software is not really leveraged. I, I will always take a product that's easy to use and that my team can be educated on and actually find value in versus a product with 10 times as many features, but which is significantly less usable. Yeah, it's It has to be... The technology has to provide real value. I think in today's economy, in today's world, we, we've started to, we've lost our love affair with technology that is simply cool. And there has to be an ROI on our technology mm -hmm. investments. Yeah. And I think that the marriage of quality software design and best in class usability with, you know, high end educational offerings like can be what can be enabled with AppSimpler is the marriage that companies should strive for. Um, Nate, we're completely out of time. I've ran over. Thank you so much for being here today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Real quickly, uh, for anybody out there who uh, hasn't heard of AppSembler or wants to get more information, the website is what? AppSembler.com? A-P-P-S-E-M-B-L-E-R.com? That's correct. Hey, man. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.